Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Eralda Lameborshi, one of the hosts for the network, and today we are talking to Peter Van Hove, Associate Lecturer in the Department of Languages and Cultures at Lancaster University. Peter holds a PhD in Italian and Comparative Literature from Columbia University, and today we will be talking about his book, Word Literature After Empire, Rethinking Universality in the Long Cold War, published this year by Rutledge um, in their Studies in Comparative Literature series. Peter, welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Aralda. It's great uh, to be here, and thank you for having me. Um, I've really enjoyed the book, and it seems like such an important contribution to the discussion on word literature. I have been especially impressed, and I have appreciated the scope and its interdisciplinarity. And a question that came up um, continuously as I was looking through the book was about its story or its genesis. Um, How did the project start for you? What was the seed that sort of planted this idea? And what was the trajectory? So yeah, I suppose I'm asking for the story, how this book came to be. Uh, Sure, I'm I'm very happy to to tell you a little bit more about the story of the the book. So basically, I, I think the seed was planted when I was writing my dissertation. It's my first book. The book mm-hmm. is not my dissertation. Let me say that, uh, you know, first of all, it's, 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 it's very different, I'd say. Um, but it still um, kind of like follows the same framework. I wanted to write mm-hmm. a comparative book, so I knew that. Uh, and I wanted to write a book that encompassed the three languages that I work in, which is uh, French, Italian, um, and uh, Chinese. So in the book, actually, two chapters are dedicated to each language. Uh, there's six mm-hmm. chapters in total and two Two chapters are dedicated to one, one, uh, two to French, two to Italian, and two to Chinese. Um, okay. And basically, in the book, I wanted to look um, at how the idea of um, of a world, the idea of the universal, but it, which are two different ideas. You know, you have to, you can't really equate one idea with the other. But mm-hmm. um, let, let's say world, uh, right? Uh, how that idea was reconfigured um, after decolonization uh, and during the Cold War. Um, and so I set out to do my research. I went to archives in, in France. I went uh, to China as well. Um, I went to Italy and um, I came up with a lot of really interesting materials. Um, 
And, uh, you know, um, I wanted to make sure also that the book kind of, I don't know if you want to, you to keep going or after. No, <laughs> um, okay, continue. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Uh, uh, so um, I, I wanted to make sure, you know, that, you know, we, we look at this idea of a world in the broadest sense possible. So I wanted to look at um, philosophy. I wanted to look at um, art history. Um, very important for me was also the debate on world literature and translatability. Um, and then finally, I also uh, looked at how the idea of a world was reinvented uh, by international organizations like uh, Penn International, but also UNESCO. And on the other side of the Cold War divide, the, the uh, Afro-Asian uh, Writers Bureau. Um, so, um, yeah, looking at the idea of world culture in, in the broadest possible sense of the term, I think, uh, and I focus mostly on this debate on world literature and, and, and translatability because I think that's actually the field, uh, you could say, or the discipline where the idea of a world has been fleshed out in the, in the most concrete way. Um, so I, I'd say that really is the genesis. That's also a kind of explains perhaps why, you know, the, the book covers so many different disciplines, as you say. Um, you know, um, I wanted to make sure that it has a very, a very broad approach, but, you know, the the case studies in the in, in the book go in in lot in, in lot more detail. So, uh, you know, I look uh, and I also look at you know several important figures that kind of shaped uh, the debate on the world and the universal um, after decolonization. I look at people like uh, Sartre, Fanon, and, and Beauvoir in the francophone context, but also uh, Malraux and his idea of the Musée Imaginaire, uh, the Imaginary Museum of World Art. Uh, then I look at Italian figures, uh, Italian intellectuals who were, you know, turd, they, they were turd-turled worldists. That's what they called themselves, right? People like Alberto Moravia, people like Pasolini. Gramsci is an important figure for me. And then in the Chinese context, um, I looked at, uh, you know, two different case studies. I looked at the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau that I already mentioned. Um, which um, kind of sought to, which was an organization that was, um, uh, you know, initially it was, you know, it was composed of countries that, you know, most, most of them were all decolonizing countries at the time. Um, and it was initially very much dominated by the Soviet Union, but later on became very much uh, controlled by the Chinese. And so I look at uh, the Chinese uh, contributions to the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau and how they were trying to, uh, reinvent a notion of world literature. Um, and then I also look at an artist, a Chinese artist, which is much later. We're talking the close of the Cold War here, so around 1989. Look at an artist called Quang uh, Yongping, and he's, he's very interesting. He, his work was included in an exhibition in France in 1989, which was an exhibition that uh, purported to be the first global exhibition, uh, the first exhibition of global art. Um, and on the other hand, he was also at the same time included in an exhibition in China. And I kind of look at those two different curatorial concepts and how they sought to envelop this evasive artist or elusive artist that was uh, Huang Yongping. Um, I don't know. So I hope this gives you an idea of the genesis of the of the book. Um, it it does. I um, there's so much breadth in it, and I um, it's it's wonderful to read and 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 kind of see all of these. Uh, different disciplines come together in your writing. Um, I wanted to go back to a remark you made early on, which you, you brought up the idea of world and the universal and were very 
um, intentional about making sure that that there was this separation in those two concepts. Uh, and could you tell me a little bit more um, about that? You know, what what do you see as a difference? How do you draw that difference? And how does it play within um, the overall argument that you are making in the book? That's a really deeply philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, we could, we, I could go on for hours, but... Sure, um, sure. You, you know, basically, the point I want to make is that it's important not to conflate it too, because of course, um, it's a, th those two terms have been, you know, very important in in in, in philosophical debates. Um, I think one point I'd make uh, is about this idea of the universal, right? So, because I think a, a lot of the book kind of takes its, or of the the philosophical framework of the book or the theoretical framework of the book takes its premise from. Judith Butler's idea of a restaging of the universal, because, you know, of course, historically, uh, the idea of the universal, uh, you know, as it grew in, you know, European Enlightenment thought, for instance, has always excluded those on the world's margins. It has excluded gendered subjects, uh, queer subjects, non-white subjectivities, colonial subjectivities. Um, and uh, Judith Butler, she makes, she, she has a wonderful article, um, I think it's called Restaging the Universal, actually, where she makes this point that, yes, that history has happened. That's that's very important on the one hand. But she says that that history of exclusion does not really um, prohibit or inhibit anyone for, uh, who has been historically on the margins of the universal from claiming the universal uh, themselves. Um, so um, one of the points that I tried to make in the book uh, is that um, you, you know the pe people of in, in a decolonizing world were were yes historically excluded from the universal ex were were excluded from the Eurocentric world, but they were making claims to a world of their own. They were. Um, um, as, as Marx uh, fam famously said uh, in the Communist Man Manifesto, they were trying to win the world back. Um, and so I look mostly at um, uh, you know Hegelian uh, framework there, but I also look at Gramsci. And what, what Gramsci really teaches us, I think, is this idea that um, you know he kind of warns us uh, against the pitfalls of any attempts at universalization. You know he he was. Uh, he, Gramsci was one of the people, actually, who who claimed that um, you know anyone can come up with their own conception of the world, whether or not you've been historically excluded, whether or not you're on the margins, whether or not you are a colonial subject, a non-white subject, a gender subject, a queer subject. You know, for him, that of course those terms didn't really matter, but uh, you know, he makes this state this claim that anyone can come up with their own conception of the world, but at the same time, he warns us against you know, the pitfalls of these attempts at universalization. And we see that in the world today, the world that we live in today, I think. And this is something I, I try to put forward in the book is, um, you know, it's true, yes, that people who were historically on the margins, um, you know, during the Cold War were making claims for the, making their own uh, claims to worldliness, were formulating their own conceptions of the world. But to, in today's world, we see places like China, who are you know uh, now kind of still claiming that history uh, of the Cold War and uh, of colonization, etc. Uh, but of course, they right they 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 right now are are you know putting their their own world 
view forward very emphatically, uh, you know, in the, in the case of China, for instance, and this also uh, risks actually um, bringing about a, a world in which people, people are once again excluded from the kind of world they are imagining, uh, especially in China. I'm thinking of, you know, uh, the the protesters in in Hong Kong or the Uyghur people or queer people in China, um, you know, they they have uh, historically um, been excluded in the in, in mostly in, 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 and this exclusion has been mostly ex- discussed in a Western context, but of course in a place like China, which claims to you know have you know constructed their alternative worldview in op- in opposition to the dominant Western worldview, those queer people. Um, are still excluded, right? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here. As no, you see, no, this is... I can kind of go off on my own <laughs> train of thought. <laughs> no, this is wonderful. No, it's 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 very it's animating the book for me in a wonderful way. So thank you. Um, I wanted to, and and I I feel that it's important to highlight the. The, the the different universalities and i'm i'm going to use this word here in in your book you know you discuss the ways in which worlds through feminism and um queer queerness and also deconstruction right how we have this different other ways of thinking about the universal and this you, you write in your book, and I'm quoting you here, um, the idea of alternative conceptions of philosophical universality, universal culture, and world literature, and their developed development during colonization and during the Cold War. And I really appreciate this notion that that you put forth where unlike our more standard and traditional understanding of universality being of European origin, um, there is this argument put forth that this understanding is one-sided and I would add imbalanced. So you argue that we need to extend it to have a, quote, multipolar constellation of competing avatars. And y- you were getting into some of that in your discussion of Gramsci and uh, bringing in the role that China is playing even currently in, in, in establishing an idea of world or um, an idea of the universal. And so I wanted to to see if you could talk a little bit about this idea of multipolar constellation in particular, but also this idea of competing avatars, how you see them, uh, not only how you see them during the long Cold War, but also currently um, as you gesture toward China's role currently in the world. Yeah, great, uh, great question. And again, you know, I, I, I hope I don't go off too much on on my own train of thought here. Uh, but yeah, this idea. I welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, basically, uh, you know, of course, we, we think of the Cold War as a bipolar world, right? You mm-hmm. have, you know, uh, two sides of the divide. Um, but I think the the debate on the on the universal, as you say, has been kind of one sided in the sense that it has been. Uh, mostly discussed in in a Western context, but of course, uh, the idea of the universal is not solely a Western concept, and that's what I'm trying to get across in the book. I I, I don't really discuss this in detail in the Chinese context, for instance. But this, of course, is a, has a millennial history in the Chinese context. You know, for this is a, a concept in China in, in China known as Tianxia or All Under Heaven, where uh, the Chinese have historically, um, you know. Uh, 
in imperial times already and for a very long time for for, for millennia seen themselves as the center of the world right uh, the, the name of the country itself, Zhongguo, uh, means the Middle Kingdom, right? Uh, so China has always seen itself as the center, as as the center of the un- of the universe. Um, but um, you know, in in the Western context, the as you say, the deconstruction of the universal has mostly focused on um, you know the on, on how the idea of the universal was invented in the West um, and uh, was um, used as 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 a as an excuse, you could say, for cultural colonialism was was abused. The Enlightenment was abu- was was abused as an as as a, as a as a tool as a as a tool to bring about cultural colonialism, um, and you know, and this is a very justified debate, and this debate is ongoing. I'm not saying that this is not an important debate. I mean, um, you know, uh, that's not a, not not at all the claim I want to make. So I, I want to reiterate also that you know I very much. Um, you know, align myself, and I'm, I'm, you know, nowhere near their level. But people like Gayatri Spivak have always warned against the dangers of the uni- of universalization. Um, you know, uh, the critique of the universal also extends to debates uh, on uh, on humanism and post-humanism, etc. And those are important, ongoing debates. That's not what I'm. Uh, what I'm saying. So I'm saying those debates, we should still have them, you know, <laughs> by all means, we shouldn't. Uh, but on the other hand, I think um, what we shouldn't forget is that other places also uh, beyond the West also wanted to uh, claim the universal. Um, and many people in the West actually uh, expressed their solidarity uh, with these people. I mean, I, I have a chapter on on Sartre and uh, his uh, preface to Lumumba, for instance, um, or um, you know, um, or you know, people like Moravia and Pasolini in the Italian context—they uh, were third-worldists, third, third uh, intellectuals from the West who were expressing their solidarity with what was happening in the decolonizing world. Um, but I think uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that, um, yeah, we should also we shouldn't forget that. Uh, you know the the people beyond the West and people who were non-white people who were uh, anti-colonial uh, critics were uh, were also claiming the world. Were trying to win the world back, as uh, you know, as as, as Marx uh, famously said. And um, that can also bring about a danger. That can also you know uh, because in, especially in the Chinese context, uh, you know. Um, they they still see themselves as in comp- as being in competition with the West. So, for uh, in 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 a, Chi- in a Chinese context, I'd say uh, the Cold War hasn't completely come to an end. You know, China um, historically did see itself as the center of the world, but of course, um, it's it it was um, that 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 status completely disappeared uh, after colonization. China was a, a semi-colonized country. Um, and uh, it's still today. China is very much sees see itself part as 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 part historically of the decolonizing world. They, um, you know, they they were trying back in the um, in in the Cold War days under Mao to forge alliances um, with uh, other decolonizing countries, especially in in, in Africa, but also in 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 uh, in Asia uh, and also in uh, Latin America. Um, and so that's one of the things I also examine in the book. You know, these um, attempts on the on the part of uh, countries like China to 
um, re to re to uh, to you know to reinvent the world beyond the West, so to speak. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here. No, you uh, are. You are. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I and 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 I think that and 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 Gramsci keeps coming back to me. Uh, primarily from what you have written in the book, but also some of the remarks that you made earlier, you know, this idea of multipolar constellation that every, um, every group or every community can and will have a desire and, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm, uh, paraphrasing you incorrectly here, but, but that, that there is the possibility of creating a story of what the world is from the subject position of the community. And uh, what I'm hearing you say is that there was an attempt outside of the sort of the Janus faced binary of the Cold War, right, that there were um, other actors outside of the U.S. and the Soviet Union that were important players in constructing these um, stories about what the world is and, and their relationship to that story and their relationship to, to these other powerful actors. And um, I'm not sure where I was going with it, but, but I guess I was affirming perhaps what, what you, you were talking about earlier um, in relation to Gramsci. And that brings me to another part of the book that um, I found interesting, and it's uh, especially as it is sort of described briefly in the introduction, um, the discussion on the China and the Soviet Union um, in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split and mm. how that shaped the decolonizing efforts. I was really curious about... Um, and you have already alluded to this about how China steps in once um, the Soviets create a, a more harmonious relationship with Western powers. And you have then the Chinese influence on um, other world building, right, or, or world building ideas. And I was, um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that particular juncture, that historical juncture, and how you see that playing a role in decolonizing efforts and building new world stories uh, during the Cold War. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that's you know, it's I think it's one of the strong points in the book. This is my chapter on the uh, Afro Asian Writers Bureau and the Chinese. Uh, uh, in you know um, the the influence that the Chinese had in that context, but you know I also talk about the Sino-Soviet split and how that also influenced Western thinkers like Pasolini and Moravia, um, uh, because they, um, like many other Westerners, were um, increasingly uh, turning their gaze towards China in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split, um, and so uh, you know uh, China, yes, very importantly. Um, Initially, they kind of, uh, you, you know, hooked their train. Can you say that? No, they, they, uh, <laughs> they, they, they were very much, um, you know, in alliance with the Soviets uh, prior to the uh, Sino-Soviet split. Uh, you know, the Soviets were sending a lot of advisors to China. Uh, and this was also oh. um, something that was reflected in the uh, Chinese conception of, of world literature, in mm. Chinese. Um, uh, initially, uh, and I looked at uh, at, the, at Chinese, you know, I, I went to the Chinese archives, went to the National Library of China, which is a very daunting place, let me Wonderful. tell you that. <laughs> but I, I found all these documents um, there, oh, which yeah. kind of illustrate this history of 
how initially their idea of world literature was very much modeled uh, after the Soviets. Um, and there was this um, a, a Chinese thinker called Zhou Yang, who was one of the main architects, you could say, of uh, Chinese literary criticism at the time during the Mao era. Um, and uh, he initially was, you know, writing in Russian journals, uh, and uh, he was, um, you know, is kind of uh, adhering to the, Rus the, the Russian state guidelines for um, for um, liter literary production, and which was very much a socialist realist uh, at the time, of course. Um, and um, the uh, what, what was interesting actually that is that the Chinese. Um, were becoming more and more forceful in this effort and they were trying to set the agenda by themselves and this was kind of like a became official uh, after the sino-soviet split uh, and during the cultural revolution so uh, we're talking uh, the um you know mid to late 60s and early 70s here and they um they, they completely split uh, the um afro-asian writers bureau along um, Sino-Soviet lines, uh, so they created. Uh, there, there was, um, uh, you know, um, the, the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau was split in two. The Chinese controlled one wing, um, and the Soviets continued to control uh, a, a, another wing, which came to be called the Permanent Bureau of Afro-Asian Writers. Uh, but the, um, the so that it's, it's it's very interesting this history because it kind of goes, you know, as you say. Uh, it kind of illustrates how these political divides, uh, so this uh, between the Soviets and the Chinese, and how they were, you know, trying to create their own spheres of influence on the geo uh, on the geopolitical stage, was also reflected in the conception of world literature uh, and world culture that the Chinese were trying to push. Um, and this is something that's also, uh, you know, so that has ramifications uh, still today, I'd say, because um, still today the Chinese uh, are trying to collaborate with uh, what they call Yafeila. So countries, uh, Yafeila is, is uh, you know, shorthand for Africa, Asia, Latin America. And still today, they're they are setting up, you know, their Confucius Institutes in places like Africa um, and, um, you know, using that history, uh, the, you know, the, the, the long geopolitical history that China has with, with in, in a decolonizing world uh, to their advantage, in the, you know, as part of the, a cultural Belt and Road Initiative, you could say. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, you you mentioned Gramsci. I can go a little bit. I can go on a little bit yes. more about Gramsci if you want. Please continue. Yes. Um, so yeah, um, Gramsci has this wonderful notion of, of uh, concezione del mondo, or conception of the world. And uh, for him, of course, this has to do with his famous idea of the hegemony, right? That uh, you know, people who are on the margins uh, can, um, from the bottom up, so from the grassroots, uh, you know, um, overtake the the existing hegemony, right? Uh, and culture for him, of course, and language, uh, language learning, deep language learning is very important in this. We have to for Gramsci, um, in order for your own. Uh, marginal conception of the world to become dominant, you have to first learn how to speak the language of the rural of the rulers. You have to learn uh, standardized Italian in his uh, in, in the Italian context uh, in order for you to um, hopefully one day make sure that you're in a position where your own conception of the world can be in a 
in the position of hegemony. But uh, maybe I can talk a little bit about translatability here because that's an important concept yes, for him as absolutely. well. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, Grumpy that was going to be my next question, actually. <laughs> but oh, continue. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, so <laughs> I'll keep it short then. But yeah, no, Grumpy okay. uh, was basically very mindful of, of the of the fact that um, you know ideas don't necessarily travel everywhere ideas don't ne- mm-hmm. are not necessarily translatable everywhere and uh, he actually writes about the idea of translatability much uh, you know uh, decades before someone like emily apter very eruditely in her book writes about it um, but for him of course it's uh, something that is uh, that has more uh, you know of course for emily apter as well it has you know very big Philosophical consequences for her as well, but uh, but uh, for for Gramsci, you know, he, he's kind of warning us um, against the pitfalls of universalization. So what you are seeing in China today, what they are doing, for instance, with their global Belt and Road, is one of the risks I think that Gramsci was warning against in his prison notebooks, um, namely that ideas don't necessarily translate anywhere and uh, even though you are historically speaking or if, even though you're speaking from a historical position of marginalization once your idea once you are you know you are in a position where you're the new hegemon where you know china is a new hegemon it's it's really um, you know i think important to remember that they're 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 historically yes they were on the margins of history we colonized china we, we did a lot of really bad things the west did a lot of really bad things in china. <laughs> i'm not saying we didn't do bad things but but today china is kind of copying the, that logic uh, right uh china is kind of copying the same exclusionary rationale in the as they are building their own universal they are using all that history of uh you know what what happened during the cold war um, and they are they're kind of uh, running the running the risk of running into this the same um, you know uh, pitfalls of translatability right. uh, so to speak uh, yeah yeah well and I think you you mentioned the same sort of and I don't know that caution would be the right word but that's what I'm going to use here almost this this in your in your introduction especially as you um, talk about um, Ai Weiwei and uh, his his building or his um, and the building of Beijing getting ready Beijing for the the Olympic Games. There is this one part on your introduction where you do talk about um, and and this is I'm just going to use your sentence here just because it's it's much much more well-written than my paraphrasing would be. But um, (laughs) you're giving me too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful book. For those of you listening, it's a wonderful book. Um, You write, China was effectively whitewashing its past self-understanding in an effort to convince the world that it was ready to join the global order. And what I hear, especially in your previous remarks in connection to to this particular section in your book, is that there is... um, there is a particular template, perhaps, of world building that that uh, we are witnessing here, and that that template is one of universalizing um, and universalizing at the expense of um, ignoring and or erasing uh, the different, the other attempts for writing a story of the world, um, and so. I, I feel like opening up your book with Ai Weiwei's work seems to be uh, a very astute observation of, of what you mentioned earlier in your in, in your conversation, which is to say that 
what we are seeing in the way that China is constructing its uh, its world and, and the, the way that it is building um, or trying to have this cultural um, influence across you know Africa, Latin America, et cetera, or the global south, that that it is almost the same sort of approach that we have witnessed previously um, in in European expressions of the world or your universality. Is that would that be fair to say? It, it's 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 fair to say, and I do make that analogy. Uh, though, mm-hmm. of course, you know, with the caveat that you know the the Chinese conception of the world, or you know their their worldview is, of course, one that has grown over millennia. And um, you know, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to brush over that, and nor do I want to brush over the history of colonization on in the, in the Chinese context. You know, those are legitimate issues, and the West has a lot of questions to ask itself. And I, you know, I, I, I do not uh, shy away from making that very clear in the book. But at the same time, as you say, uh, we live in a world that is changing rapidly. Um, and uh, I think, you know, our ways of thinking about the world need to change along with the world. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we we live in a world in which, yes, China used to be during the um, late Qing dynasty and, and during the 20th century, a country that, um, was, that was very weak on the international stage. Uh, you know, they, um, they were... Um, legitimately, perhaps uh, joining global efforts or, or worldwide efforts uh, to fight colonialism. Uh, of course, you know uh, the history of that is also quite momentous. You know, we're talking about uh, if we're talking about decolonization, you know uh, that kind of coins that all of that history coincides with the Mao era. You know, don't rem- don't forget Mao comes to power in 1949. The Cultural Revolution is late 60s, and you know all of the history of decolonization. Uh, you know, coincides with a very bloody moment or very uh, dark pages in, in in Chinese history, which um, you know people in China are uh, to a large extent still shy away from discussing today. Um, but um, yeah, so there's a lot that comes into the into the picture there. But I think all in all, you can you can make the argument, especially today. Um, you know, China is using. You know, China claims to be. Uh, a communist country, for instance, but of course that is not, not not the case at all today. You know, China is a state capitalist country, and of course, uh, ideologically, yes, they are a communist country. Uh, but um, you know, the, the, you know, uh, you, I think um, you know, Marx is is useful to us today because he embo- embodies the spirit of critique, and uh, I think this is something that in China, in the Chinese context, is completely absent because anyone who dares to uh, transgress the, the boundaries of what ex- of accepted criticism in the Chinese context is co- immediately shut down. You know, it's one of the um, you know, it's, it's 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 one of the most invasive surveillance states that that we know today. Um, I mean, we 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 both met in Hong Kong in 2014, uh, and uh, I remember on one occasion skipping class <laughs> in, uh, in Jacob Edmund's otherwise wonderful uh, class right, on world right, literature, right. etc., uh, to go and uh, check out the protests that were happening, happening yes. there. Um, you know, the, Hong Kong is another example of how uh, China today is kind of uh, repressing. Uh, those at its margins is repressing voices mm-hmm. that are there to be critical, and this this is something I think you could say 
yeah, as you say, this template is being being copied by them. They they're they're using the tools to a large extent that the West has used in the past to to mm -hmm. to try and do the same. <laughs> um, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's it's a bold claim, but I do think with a lot of caveats, you can go as far sure. as, as as making that claim today. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, I I'm glad that you mentioned Marx because, and this is a little bit shifting of gears, but we can come back to some of the points that you were making uh, about China if, if need be later. But I wanted to shift gears a little bit because there is this um, passage that you quote at length from the Communist Manifesto, and, and perhaps we're returning a little bit to our conversation about untranslat untranslatability that we uh, started earlier. Um, there is the section where you dedicate to word literature debates, which is very refreshing, and you place in conversation a lot of the scholars that have contributed through the years to the idea of word literature. Um, and I was particularly interested in the conversation uh, that you introduce through Emily Apter and Jonathan Eric and their respective works um, and their focus on the Communist Manifesto passage, which announces the coming of word literature. And as a comparatist, your conversation engages in a close analysis of the word, of the word, uh, or, or of the particular phrases and words in the translation of the passage from the manifesto, um, stating that the purpose of both Apter and Eric is relevant to your own argument. And um, I it was it was a wonderful example of a comparatist work, right? To see that close reading of 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 the of the translation, and I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit more about this particular juncture, um, how untranslatability is so crucial to the work um, that the book is trying to accomplish here, um, and the relevance of the arguments that you're bringing forth. Absolutely, and now we're 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 getting to. Uh, you know the, the kind of like the field I want to make my my the, the book the, the book tries to contribute to all of these debates on, on on world literature right the question of translatability or untranslatability is an important one there um, and I I I think um, what you know I'm I'm kind of like in the middle I'd say in this debate uh, like I I hope the book tries to make that clear because what I think you know people like Emily Apter have already. Very raised very legitimate legitimate claims uh, uh, or very legitimate uh, have, have, you know uh, pinpoint the number of of problems uh, that they have with uh, the world literary approach and I and I I, I broadly agree with uh, with uh, with her point there uh, with you know this idea because you know in people like David Damrosch whom I respect a lot of course you know like I, it's not as if I'm you know taking sides in this debate <laughs> but uh, people like like David Damrosch he he plays a lot of em emphasis on uh, this idea that literature or world literature gains in translation right and um, you know and I, I'd say he's kind of with uh, someone like uh, Pascal Casanova um, you know, and, and her idea of uh, literature world, this, and you know how uh, for them world literature is, is is something that very much functions in you, you could say a center periphery uh, dynamic, um, uh, and uh, this is something that people like uh, Emily Apter uh, 
and, and but others, you know, I I, I look into Feng Chi. I, I hope that's how we how we pronounce his name. I've always wondered. But Feng Chi, I think, uh, is a wonderful book, and Amir uh, Mufti uh, wrote a wonderful book. Uh, and so this debate is ongoing. Uh, but I do think that the debate has sort of come to a close in the sense that uh, you know people like David Dambrush have started to welcome in these critical voices. You know, so um, I think uh, you know there has been. There, there, the debate has been quite heated at times. I mean, someone like uh, Gayatri Spivak, uh, Gayatri Chakraborty Spivak, has also contributed to the debate uh, with her idea of planetarity. Um, um, so, wait a minute. What was I trying to say? Yes, you, you, you were, you were uh, uh, asking about that uh, passage from uh, from Marx. So, this is something that uh, a lot of uh, scholars uh, on world literature have have quoted. But the the, the, the it's kind of like a, a the passage kind of. Uh, and it, it holds the problem of translation within itself, right? Um, because um, uh, there's this notion of verkehren in German in, in the in the original journal of the of that famous passage on world literature, where uh, Marx and um, and Engels claim that world literature is something that, uh, like the world, uh, is you know belongs to the bourgeoisie, and it's up to um, those on the margins to win that world back, right? He makes that argument in a different place in the manifesto, but that's basically what he's trying to get at there. World literature is 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 a bourgeois phenomenon, and that you know we, we need to win this world uh, back. Um, and you know the, that that word verkehren, and this is something that Emily Apter and Jonathan Arak uh, pick up on. Um, etymologically, it you know it, you, you could translate it as a traffic, right? Verkehr, that's the word. Allseitiger Verkehr is what the uh, original uh, German has. Traffic in all directions. You could translate it as that. But Verkehr, and you know, it's uh, Verkehr. I'm 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 a native Dutch speaker, <laughs> so that's also uh, it, it brings me to you know I'm thinking in Dutch here. Verkehr means the wrong way around. Right, upside down, and this is something that that's there also etymologically in the German. So um, Emily Apter and and uh, and Arak uh, pick up on this as this uh, idea of a verkehrte Welt or world uh, turned upside down, and that uh, Marx and, and Engels are already, uh, you know, and, and they are in manifesto uh, making that claim. And um, I was trying to build on that a little bit in in the in my introduction because I do think. Um, that it's important to, as you say, look at look at the world not just as a Western phenomenon, not just as a Western idea, but as as part of this uh, constellation of uh, competing avatars of you know different people in the, people have always have tried to come up with their with their own conceptions of the world, um, and I tried to bring those in conversation a little bit in the book. I hope that's still making sense. No, it does. It does. Absolutely. Um, and I I find the notion of the untranslatable, uh, and perhaps, you know, it's it's a concept, and, and Emily Apter's book, Against Translation, is a very lengthy treatment of this particular, uh, of this particular concept. And there is this, there is this, power in the idea of the untranslatable in the sense that it allows for those spaces that can't be known, right, to, to create, and, and, and perhaps this is me just um, kind of speaking very broadly here, but, but those untranslatable spaces, right, to constitute their own 
avatars, if you will, to borrow the word that you use in the book, right? The avatar being the story that we are telling about the world. And um, I think it's in the, in the debates of word literature, this is the, 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 the points of contention sometimes have to do with how we institutionalize the study of word literature. And, you know, you mentioned Demrosh earlier, and a lot of his concerns in a lot of his writings has, have to do with well, where is the discipline and how do we teach word literature and what do we count as word literature, right? And so the, the, the categories about gaining in translation, et cetera. But um, there is this also this concern of other writers like Mufti and Chea who look at the criticism of the universe, Eurocentric universal or the Eurocentric world. Um, and even you, in your book, you mention um, the, the critique that Edward Said and Orientalism extends toward this idea of the universal that is very Eurocentric, but, mm-hmm. but that the criticism leveraged against him has to do with the fact that there is this desire to bridge the gap between the center and periphery rather than consider the critique or, or critique the reasons for the gap being mm. there. Exactly. Uh, and I'm not yeah. sure, I'm not sure if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, but this is what I picked up on whenever I was reading yeah, your book. Yeah. Um, thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know, if, if I have to pick a side, I mean, I, I, let me, <laughs> let me say again, I think David Damrosh is a wonderful scholar, and he he wrote a wonderful book recently, and I I actually managed to still get it into the book because if I have to pick a side in the debate, I'm with the, <laughs> I'm with uh, you know Gayatri Chakravarti's Pivak in that of a discipline who kind of um, uh, you know is 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 arguing for this concept of planetarity and a lot of people who are critical of of world literature in the vein of David Damrosh and. and uh, Pascal Casanova, but also uh, someone like uh, Moretti, um, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, you know, will, will, will return to this idea of planetarity, right? But uh, you know, th- th- there's also the uh, Emily Apter, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, corner, you could say, <laughs> so, uh, who's coming with uh, with the idea of the untranslatable and how uh, world literature places too much emphasis on studying works in translation and this is something that you know is kind of maybe um epitomized or uh, exemplified by the fact that there are a lot of world literature anthologies which are only in english um and uh you know world literature uh, courses historically as they grew mostly um uh, you know, during the uh, d- during the Cold War, actually, because it's actually David Damrosh writes about this: how world literature, as a field, as a discipline, as st- was established during the Cold War uh, as a field of study. Uh, because you know, they, what 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 what's, what to do with all these students who are coming in on the GI Bill? What to do with the democratized uh, university campus? And how to teach these students? You know, uh, uh, comparative literature as a field historically kind of grew as a field for more advanced students, right? And students who had already studied languages, and um, you know, students who were able to study uh, um, in three or four different, or study texts in three or four different 
uh, languages like like I have painstakingly done <laughs> or tried to do. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, so I, I would, you know, if I have to pick a side, I'll, I'd pick the after side. But right. someone like okay. uh, it's like David Dambrush more recently has really has kind of embraced this criticism, and I do think this is a good thing. And so he wrote a wonderful book called "Comparing the Literatures," uh, uh, comparing the literatures, um, which kind of draws the history of comparative literature and world literature. Uh, and looks at scholars like Spivak. He, he discusses Spivak in detail, um, but also, you know, he looks at the history of comparative literature as a field. Um, and uh, he more, he, he, I think, wants to more than anything build a bridge to all these critical voices. So, in a sense, world literature as a field has already welcomed these voices. You know, people like Emily Apter have spoken at the Institute for World Literature. I believe uh, there's a, a number of. Um, volumes that came out including uh, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet because it just came out a couple of months ago and it's very expensive it's the Cambridge History of World Literature uh, edited by um, Debjani Kanguli I think um, and then there's uh, other books that kind of bridge the two sides of the debate for or against world literature right uh, so I do think uh, um, I, I, the book kind of like tries to my, my book then tries to kind of sketch out those debates. And um, yeah, I do think, you know, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a sucker for, sorry, excuse my French. I'm a sucker for, for problems in translation. I like to look at the original and I've been trained as such uh, to always look at the original. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm sure, I hope that makes a little bit sense. No, sense what it I'm does, to, yeah. 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 It does, and, and I, I and I do sense in your book that there is this um, there are, there are parts of it where you I could tell that there was that pleasure in looking at the original, which is why I, I actually wanted to talk to you about specifically that passage in the manifesto because you do you do what comparatists do so well, and you do it very well too, where you're looking at the language and the original and 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 uh, drawing the analysis from there, which I I I think. Uh, to be a very important exercise in understanding the places that are untranslatable. And, um, and I think too, just to kind of extend some of your points that you have made um, when it comes to, you know, thinking about the idea of literature gaining in translation, there is some truth to that. And, and I feel like conversations like the, the Damrosh's book, what is word literature? And then, other um, others who have contributed to to that conversation, I think that they have raised important questions for other scholars then to kind of pick up and think about modes of circulation mm. and think about imbalances of uh, of of power in the publication and and also a, a in terms of what language is translated into what language. Uh, and, and, and so those questions, not that they weren't asked before, but I, I believe that they became more pressing with, uh, with studies like David Damrosh and others. Um, mm. And I, I, I tend to, to, to appreciate the kind of work that you are putting forth here because it seems to be one that sees the value on both and other camps that surround these two uh, polar sides, maybe. Mm. Um, and it sort of stays true to this idea of the book overall, which is to say that there are these different poles or these different points where we can imagine 
wor- the world or where we can imagine universality. And um, I think it's very pertinent to the discussion of word literature and the debates that have been taking place in it over the last few decades, um, as you um, as you highlighted earlier. Um, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit, with your permission, to, sure, sure. <laughs> to the conversation, because I meant to ask this earlier, but I think we we got into a, a rich conversation about word literature and I didn't want to interrupt that. But I want to go back a little bit to your um, to your points about the Afro Asians Writers Bureau. And we you know, this was uh, made in connection to the contribution that China had during the Cold War after the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and there are there are parts in the book where you also uh, mention the non-aligned uh, the non-aligned ideology, right? This, um, mm-hmm. and and so I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more because it seems to be very pertinent to the work that you're doing. You know, the the, the ideology of non-alignment, right? That there are these two powerful actors, and then you have a group of nations from the global south and Latin America and, and, and Africa and Southeast Asia, and that China p- does play an important role in this. And so I was, I was wondering if you wanted, if you could talk a little bit more about the ideology of non-alignment and how mm. it, it uh, contributes to your discussion overall, but how it also interrupts this binary between uh, the two powerful camps or this Janus-faced um, story of the Cold War as it is generally narrated. Yeah, I, I, I think, yes, the, the non-alignment movement, I mean, I actually wrote part of my dissertation on it, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I'd say, uh, I kind of changed my, my, my thoughts about, or my thought pattern about it a little bit. Um, uh, but yeah, it it, it was. I, I say it's an important marker. Uh, someone like uh, Deepesh Chakrabarti uh, uh, has has done wonderful research on uh, the Bandung moment, right? Uh, and also uh, one of my PhD advisors, uh, Lidil Yo, uh, has, has has researched um, kind of the what she calls the shadows of universalism and how um, the non-alignment movement uh, kind of. Uh, uh, she she wrote a wonderful article called "The Shadows of Universalism," in um, in which uh, she investigates how uh, you know in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights how the non-alignment movement played an important part in that and how those two are quite related. Uh, and but the non-alignment movement, uh, I, I'd say, is is a marker of the history of decolonization broadly speaking. You know, the Bandung Conference um, of 1955 was, you know, you could say a blimp on the large arc of, uh, on the long arc uh, of decolonizing history, if that's the way of putting it. Uh, It was an important moment for sure. And yes, uh, um, it was also important in the sense that, uh, and and China played an important part in in, in it, Uh, you're right. So for instance, uh, Zhou Enlai, uh, you know, one of the most important political figures in the Chinese context at the time, uh, he uh, gave a speech at uh, at Bandung, um, and um, the non-alignment movement was also very uh, was instrumental in the creation of the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau. Um, 
But I think uh, what has been what what and a lot of uh, scholars have actually studied this history. It's been a, there's been a lot of debates uh, recently or in recent years on um, you know uh, socialist internationalism or also you know like uh, um, you know the Afro Asian the concept of the Afro Asian um, and um, I think what has been a little bit overlooked is is the way in which uh, uh, China kind of wanted to um, uh, champion a mostly nationalist agenda, especially uh, um, from the 1960s onwards. And this was perhaps detrimental to the non-alignment movement in, in, in many ways, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, the non-alignment movement was supposed to embody this internationalist ideal but at the same time, you get this competition within the socialist world between uh, the bloc of nations that were very much uh, choosing China's side on the one hand and the bloc of nations in a decolonizing world that were choosing the Soviets. Um, and um, yeah, what I try to do in the book is kind of yeah um, explore that history of those divides, those divides that existed within uh, the decolonizing world um, where, uh, you know, uh, the question of nationalism didn't go away. It was actually an important, uh, you know, in, in spite of all of these efforts to come up with this new internationalist ideal, there were, um, you know, countries like China that were very much putting their own uh, agenda uh, center stage. You know, the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau is a good example. They, um, after the, uh, the two bureaus split along Sino-Soviet lines, uh, the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau, um, under the Chinese control, actually moved to Beijing, uh, and uh, I found all all sorts of wonderful details, like how uh, the the Chinese set up an, a, a writer sanatorium where writers from across the Afro-Asian world, uh, you know, from countries that were in a Chinese sphere of influence, could go and you know have a retreat and everything. And I found lots of wonderful, wonderfully interesting details. Uh, Kind of buried in the in the archive in uh, in the archives in, in the National Library of China, and uh, it, was, it was really exciting to dig, dig it all oh, up. But cool. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and um, I I'm wondering, you know, um, you mentioned that there were these that there were these divisions within even the decolonizing movement of this international, you know. Um, international group of nations in the non-aligned movement. And it, it seems to me that perhaps that's that's sort of reflective of the spirit of the very movement, right? Um, this idea that um, there is this third way, of course, which is not necessarily, well, it's reacting against the imperialism, racism, and um, and all other isms um, of these this divided Cold War camp, but also these divisions that you mentioned within the non-aligned movement. I'm wondering if those are um, perhaps the expressions of what its project ultimately was, right? To, to speak to the different ways of thinking about the world. Um, and of course, nationalism complicates whatever it is that I'm proposing here, but um, that is something that came up for me as you were speaking about you know, these divisions within the movement, um, you know, whether or not isn't, isn't that a way to think about this um, multifaceted conception of what the world is and how does that manifest even as 
you know, this group of nations is trying to create this third way international um, um, collaboration between, between nations that aren't necessarily interested in entering these opposing um, camp of, of, the, of the Cold War. Mm. Um, all right. And I also wanted to um, kind of go back a little bit to the text because I, I realized that our conversation on the non-aligned kind of took us away a little bit from, um, from you know, the, 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 the project at hand here. And um, there was this passage in your introduction, which I, um, I felt was very important to to set the stage or, or create or to frame your project as a whole. Um, and there are several points in the introduction where you are very careful uh, and, and thoughtful to, um, as you say in, in your book, to reiterate my allegiance, allegiance to the critique of universality from the standpoint of feminism, post-colonialism, anti-racism, and deconstruction. I also believe that we need to level the critical playing field and adapt the object of our critique for our changing times. When the West was deconstructing itself, the rest was constructing. And that was a line that really struck a, a chord with me um, in the sense that it's a very clear and concise way to situate the dynamics at play. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about what it is that seems important at this juncture here and how this idea of while the West was deconstructing, the rest was constructing um, mm. and the role that it plays in your project of rethinking universality. Because, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's this animation of these different movements within this, this, this separate regions and the project of deconstructing and constructing seems op seem opposing, right? Um, but also in the deconstruction, there is some sort of world building and what that is, you know, we can, we can think about. Yeah, no, that, that, that that's a great, uh, great point. And I think, I mean, what I'm trying to get at there is basically the timeline. If we think of the timeline, you know, when did, uh, the decon deconstruction, um, happen, the deconstruction of the, um, of Western metaphysics that uh, Derrida inaugurated with his of grammatology. Um, uh, you know, we're talking the the 1960s, and of course, um, you know, he he also writes eloquently in a way that uh, I never, uh, I will never be able to write. But uh, Derrida writes very eloquently about how uh, you know one of the you know key points in his project is precisely also deconstructing ethnocentrism. Now, for him, logocentrism and ethnocentrism are are, are, are are deeply intertwined, and so this it kind of also explains why someone like Derrida would become important for post-colonial thinkers, thinkers like Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak. Um, but um, if we if we look at the timeline, um, you know, post-structuralism, post-colonialism, the poco pomo uh, like. Um, um, like a friend of mine always used to call it poco pomo, post-colonialism, post-modernism. You know, um, you know all of you know, all of those important moments, like you know, Gayatri Sakharov, Spivak, Gandhi, Subaltern Speak, etc. You know, that was the 1980s. 1980s is also a time when people on the other side of the political spectrum, on the right, um, you know, like Francis Fukuyama, were declaring the end of history, right? 
uh, yeah. Um, and so, um, but the 1980s uh, kind of also coincide with a time when, you know, we, we have towards the end of the 1980s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you, you, so for me, those two moments of deconstruction on the one hand and uh, construction uh, in the sense, construction in the sense that, you know, the, the rest of the world started to embrace uh, state capitalism uh, during this period. So uh, uh, I, I think that's something that perhaps, um, you know, seminal thinkers, and I, I don't have the ambition to be like Derrida or whatever, that's not what I'm saying here, <laughs> but seminal thinkers like Derrida, uh, they have um, they kind of, they, they weren't able to foresee that perhaps, you know, so uh, they uh, their work... Uh, was very important in the sense that they inaugurated the deconstruction of the Western Universal, um, but they were doing so at a time that other places were also, um, you know, building their own claims to worldliness, constructing their own, own claims to worldliness, and those claims to worldliness were um, kind of um, muscle muscle bound. I'm not sure if you can say it, muscle bound, or uh, they were. Uh, they coincided with their with 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 their economic growth after you know like the in, in the 1990s uh, and also in the 1980s places like China started to boom uh, right and um, uh, one of the arguments that I'm trying to make in the book is uh, that these thinkers in the 1980s they were making very important claims about how the um, you know the universal as it has been imagined in western metaphysics and philosophy excluded those on its margins queers non-whites um, um, you know people with disabilities etc um, and that's very important but perhaps uh, we should now in, in in the world that we live in in this multipolar world where places like china are becoming much more forceful uh, where places like uh, like uh, like Russia, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, have completely embraced uh, capitalism. Uh, you know, we are living in a world where those old left wing, left right divides are no longer as clear cut. You know, uh, um, so we should also perhaps use the tools uh, that we have at our disposition. Uh, you know the tools that um, feminist critics, critics, that deconstructivist critics, that Marxist critics have offered us, and still continue to offer us for the deconstruction of the Western Universal. We should, you know, to to put it simply, the Western Universal. Right? Uh, we should also, we I think we should use those tools, those wonderful tools that we have: feminism, deconstruction, Marxism, and we should use those tools to perhaps deconstruct the emerging worlds of today, uh, or try to at least and. Um, that's one of the arguments I'm trying to put forward uh, there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and it seems that, you know, there is this um, call for, for an interrogation of all, all these worlds that are emerging. And, and of course in the West, we have, you know, these tools that are useful in the deconstruction of Western universality and and they could perhaps be useful as elsewhere um and 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 that's very clear yeah that's very clear um throughout the the book and i think you sort of deploy this as well and you mentioned uh huang yong ping which i'm not sure if i'm saying that name correctly Um, (laughs) thank you um so yeah, you mentioned him earlier, and um, particularly these um, uh, these two exhibits—one in France and um, one in China, right? And yeah, 
And I think your discussion in that chapter, um, it, it seems to kind of illustrate perhaps um, the suggestion, the overall argument of the book, which is to say, you know, deconstructing the emerging worlds, because an, an exhibit in itself is almost a construct, well, it is a constructed space, right? That yes, it's that yeah. it's trying to create a narrative or a story. And so in your reading on on um, Wang Yongping's um, exhibits in France and China, it seems to me, and, you know, um, I'd, I'd like to, to kind of invite your thoughts on it, but it seems to me that, that part of w- what it is that you're doing is you're you're placing in or you're animating the very argument that you're putting forth in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's it, he's, a, he's a, a fascinating case because, you know, so Huang Yongping was, you know, this today, perhaps he, he sadly passed away a number of years ago. This today remembered as a global artist. So you, because, you know, he was born in, in China, yes, and he produced work in China, uh, but he uh, moved to France um, and uh, interesting, and so he actually represented France at one point at the Venice Bay Biennale. So I wanted to think about this notion of what it means to be global in in art. And then, of course, in the the preceding uh, chapter, I look at the notion of world art, and I look at Malraux's Musée Imaginaire. Now we came up with this kind of what you could say neo colonial um, claim to the all of the art of the world and how. Um, you know, in, in in a place like France with the Musée Imaginaire that Malraux designed, uh, all of the world's art could be salvaged and just put on display uh, through his, uh, you know, like collection of, of photographs and, 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 and albums that he put together. Uh, but Huang Yongping is very much, yeah, like you say, uh, it kind of illustrates, what, uh, I'd say, one of the key points in the book in the sense that he was uh, captured in the two exhibitions that he was um, um, exhibited in, in 1989. Uh, between two competing claims to the universal. Uh, so on the one hand, he was uh, uh, framed in uh, Le Magicien de la Terre, which is today remembered as one of the first quote-unquote global exhibitions of uh, of, of, of art. Uh, as And, 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 I, and I, I looked into the archives. I went to the Centre Pompidou because this was a, an exhibition that took place at... Uh, Centre, uh, Centre Pompidou uh, and the um, uh, Grand Dalle de la Villette in, in Paris in 1989. Um, and I looked at all of that, at the archives there. And basically what you, the, the only conclusion that you can come to, and someone like Lucy Steeds also comes to the same conclusion in her a wonderful history of this exhibition, is basically that, um, you know, the La Magicien de la Terre constituted a neo-colonial claim to the universal in much in the same vein as Malraux's claim had been. Um, and um, so Huang Yongping was captured in, in, in one claim to the universal of a, of a, of a, of a neo-colonial strand, of quite conservative strand as well, in the France of 1989. And on the other hand, in China in 1989, he was placed, uh, he was uh, shown at an exhibition uh, called uh, China Avant-Garde in its English translation. Then, um, that was an exhibition curated by Kaoming Lu. And uh, Kaoming Lu is a wonderful uh, Chinese art historian who also wrote extensively about what he did as a curator in the 80s in China. Um, and at the time, uh, someone like Huang Yongping was framed in China as in a completely different claim to the universal as he was in France. Uh, namely, uh, the, uh, he was kind of uh, placed under the 
in the framework of what is known in China as Marxist humanism that kind of uh, in the 1980s was, was prevalent among Chinese theorists, but also artists. Um, and so what I'm trying to do in the book, I, I don't want to go into too much detail. Go and read it, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> I try to compare right. those two competing, you know, there, there, there are two claims to the universal. It's very interesting because Huang Yongping himself saw himself as a deconstructionist. <laughs> he taught, him, he taught yeah. himself as a, yeah. as a Dadaist artist who mm. wanted to, um, you know, who was critical of all kinds of, you know, overarching frameworks in which he would eventually be placed. So I tried to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, uh, you know, dig all of that up uh, and I tried to, yeah. 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 Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, I also wanted to think as an, in closing in particular, um, I wanted to see um, and think with you about perhaps um, directions for word literature um, as you see them, uh, especially in light of your book and, you uh, implications, you know, given the arguments that you have put forth, but also perhaps uh, projects, right, that ha- it ha- the book as it is has inspired for you and possible directions um, that you will be taking. Sure. So uh, I, I think there there's a lot of really exciting work happening in world slash comparative literature. I think you can, we can, we can almost say uh, that a lot of people that world literature and comparative literature sort of have joined forces, <laughs> and uh, some people are more, some voices are more critical, uh, like Emily Apter. Um, you know, some voices are more, uh, you know, on on David Damrosch's side. But uh, I think um, there there has been there have been avenues of collaboration. Uh, but I, I I like the I I I, I want I, I think in my next project explore the idea of uh, world literature a little bit more and perhaps uh, link it to the idea of democracy. And I know that's a big concept, um, but um, I, I do think um, it w- would be interesting to pursue that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking into, uh, in the Chinese context, someone like Dei Tao, um, and uh, th- then I would like to compare that with um, with thinkers like um, writers, like uh, Edouard Louis, uh, who question... Uh, uh, democracy from a completely different uh, perspective than someone like Beitao does, uh, but uh, really flesh out that idea of, of of democracy and how that comes to fore in world literature. And then uh, I, I'm I'm hoping to to sort of build on Edward Said's wonderful uh, book, um, uh, World Literature. Oh no, it wasn't World Literature. Democratic literary criticism, humanism, and democratic literary criticism. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, so that's one of the premises there. Uh, but yeah, linking that to recent debates in world literature, that's what I'm hoping to do, but it's very much in the, in, in the early stages. Uh, so I hope that one day that will be another book, but, uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, you just finished this one. So I perhaps, yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps just kind of, uh, getting the inspiration. Thank you so much, Peter, that, that those projects, that project sounds really wonderful. And I am looking forward to reading your next book. I know you probably need a long break after <laughs> finishing. This I one, do, but... <laughs> I do. <laughs> but I'm I've really enjoyed speaking with you uh, and thinking about your book, and I am again really looking forward to your other work and talking to you again about it once it's ready. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It was really a pleasure speaking with you, Aralda. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you too.